If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Facts of Assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. The headlines of new discoveries continue, but are we approaching our limits? Mathematician and broadcaster Marcos de Sortoy explores what we cannot know. I'm a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, um, but then I got this new job title. I'm the Simone Professor for the Public Understanding of Science, which kind of always makes me laugh a little bit because I think um, everyone expects with a title like that that I know the whole of science. And here I am to kind of explain it to you. And in fact, actually, when I took over, I remember quite soon after getting just journalists ringing me up with kind of random questions and expecting that I would know the answer. And I, I remember one time the, um, the Nobel Prize for Medicine had just been announced. And the journalist said, um, oh, yeah, uh, it's just been announced for the discovery of telomeres. Could you tell me what a telomere is? Um, now, biology really isn't my strong point. So um, I have a clue what a telomere was. Um, so I'm embarrassed to admit that I was in front of my laptop and I, I pulled up Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Um, so I read through quickly and, um, and then confidently explained to this journalist that it's the piece at the end of a DNA that controls how long it will last. And, um, um, and I thought, oh, this is kind of crazy. I need to realize that, you know, uh, there's no way that uh, anyone can know it all. In fact, probably, you know, who were the last people to know the whole of science? Probably going back to Galileo or Newton and probably not even them. But, but then it began to make me think, um, well, uh, could science know it all? It's actually a, been a theme which has been running throughout this festival. You know, how much can science know and what are the limits of science? So I uh, sort of embarked on this journey just to see you know, are there questions in science that by their very nature we can already say now um, we can't answer? So I, I wrote this book, new book, uh, I've been working on it for the last three years, sort of just looking across the sciences uh, to see whether there are questions that we can already say now, that just by the nature of the question, it is unanswerable. Um, maybe there aren't any, maybe we can know everything, but, you know, I don't think um, the universe is set up as a sort of exercise in the philosophy of science. There surely are some things that are beyond our ken. Um, so I divided up the book into seven what I've called edges of knowledge, which I think is sort of uh, maybe have boundaries, edges beyond which we can't go. So I'm going to give you a little kind of guided tour, a uh, quick guided tour of some of these edges. I'll go into some in a few more detail. But I think that desire to know is so basic in us. I mean, Aristotle starts off metaphysics um, with the statement, everyone by nature 
desires to know. And I think it's part of our evolutionary survival. The brain has just kind of been programmed to, to seek knowledge because that's going to help it to survive. I mean, I think it's almost as basic as the desire to reproduce, the desire to know. And actually, I did a bit of research to see um, how common is the word know across all languages. And actually, it's only one of about 100 words that has a universal uh, translation across all languages. Not even the word to eat actually has a, um, a universal translation. You know, you have to work hard in some languages to translate that. Um, so the desire to know is incredibly sort of basic in us. But I think it's always dangerous at any point in history to say, oh, we will never be able to know this because, you know, it, that's, you know, like a red rag to most scientists. And 10 years later, we do know something about it. So I, I kind of kept in mind the story of this um, 19th century uh, scientist, Auguste Comte, who made such a statement in 1835. Um, he said, we shall never be able to study by any method the chemical composition of stars. Uh, and that seems a very fair comment, given that, you know, uh, we still haven't visited a star. Um, and he certainly thought, you know, we'll never be able to go and dig a bit of the star out and go and analyze it. But what he hadn't taken into account that, of course, uh, uh, although we can't visit the star, every night the star visits us. And, uh, you know, several decades later, the light have been analyzed and we now know um, in great detail the chemical composition of stars. So I kind of kept this in mind as a kind of warning story to me that, uh, you know, uh, there are, if you say something's unknown, probably the next decade you'll discover it is known. But still, you know, maybe I can apply my mathematical mindset to actually prove that things, some things are by their nature beyond knowledge. I guess this talk of known uh, unknowns isn't unique to science, of course. And there's a very famous philosopher, Donald Rumsfeld, um, who, when he was pressed on weapons of mass destruction, made this very famous statement, there are known knowns. Uh, there are the things that we know that we know. Uh, we also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. Uh, but there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. Um, and he got given the Foot in the Mouth uh, Award by the Plain Eng English Speaking Society for this statement, which I actually think is a little bit unfair, because I think this is a very good description of different states of knowledge. Um, he actually missed one, I think, which are the unknown knowns, which, as Slavoj Žižek said, are come out somehow those things that you actually you do know, but you deny, you know, they're kind of rep repressed thoughts and uh, um, sort of Freudian things, very important for a politician. Probably he didn't want to admit to those ones. Um, but of course, yeah, unknown unknowns, they're the black swans. I can't tell you about those, else they'd be known. They're the things which are transformative and generally just uh, change our view of science. And, and they're the exciting moments when we get those. So I'm going to try and explore the known unknowns and try and identify the, whether any that will remain unknowable for all time. Are there any? I guess one of the other motivations, as well as taking over this job, the professor for the public understanding of science, um, was also uh, the person that I took it over from, because my predecessor was a certain Richard Dawkins. Um, now, Richard Dawkins spent a lot of time towards the end of his uh, tenure of this professorship not talking just about science, but also about religion. So I braced myself when I took over for the questions I would get, not just about telomeres, but about my beliefs in God. I sort of wanted to put a little bit of distance between me and the God debate. I wanted to talk about science. Um, so I came up with a strategy for these journalists. So, um, so I actually admitted that I was a deeply religious man. And they were kind of a bit shocked before they got too excited. I explained that my religion is the arsenal. Um, every weekend I go to the Emirates Stadium and I worship my idols and uh, sing songs. So you're good, some Arsenal supporters back there. Excellent, yeah. Every season we reaffirm our faith, don't we? That next season will be the season we win the Premiership 
and each season our faith is tested. Quite a lot of journalists uh, bought this, but a few were just a bit more persistent and said, oh, come on, okay, what are your beliefs in God? Um, and so I remember one a Sunday morning on BBC Northern Ireland Radio on a philosophy, philosophy and religion programme um, uh, that I got pushed on this matter. And I kind of went on and said, look, I'm happy to talk about philosophy of science, but I don't want to talk about religion, really. Um, uh, as soon as uh, we got on, uh, that went out the window and he started pressing me, pressing me. He says, um, you know, Sir, Sir Marcus, do you, do you believe in God? Oh, sorry, that was terrible. So it, <laughs> I won't do that again. Um, uh, so, uh, so, so he kind of pushed me on this. And actually, you know, as a mathematician, I spend a lot of time proving the existence of things or disproving the possibility that those things can exist. Um, but if I'm going to do that, I need a very clear definition um, to be able to work in, to be able to prove uh, the existence or not. So I, so I kind of pushed him and said, okay, well, uh, give me a definition and then I'll try and engage with you. And he said, Marcus, it's something which transcends human understanding. It's beyond definition. And I thought, that's a cop-out. What a cop-out. I can't, you know, just, you've just wiped me out of the game. I have no way to engage with that kind of uh, uh, definition. Uh, so, so I went away sort of uh, a bit sort of dismayed. But then it started to work on me and thought, well, well, that's actually maybe quite an interesting definition. Okay, well, why don't you define God as the things that we will never know? And maybe as a scientist, I can apply my mind to try and identify what those things are that will always be beyond our knowledge. And we can sort of explore whether they have any power or any effect on um, the world around us. And, and in fact, I'm not the first to kind of think of this idea. I, I'm, uh, I'm at New College in Oxford, and I remember talking to um, one of my philosophy colleagues, um, uh, Stephen Mulhall, um, who's a Wittgenstein guy, and, and he referred me to this uh, uh, guy, Herbert McCabe, who was a, a Marxist theologian. Get that, a Marxist theologian um, in Oxford. And he's got a bizarre kind of essays on Christian liturgy and things, really obscure things. But he had this one essay which was sort of um, about sort of more fundamental things. And he made this statement, to assert the existence of God is to claim that there is an unanswered question about the universe. So I, I thought that was quite an interesting definition that I would take on this journey to the edges of knowledge and just test every now and again what sort of God would that be if we can sort of explore it scientifically. So I said I've divided up into seven edges of knowledge and I guess um, you know the ultimate symbol of unknowability um, I, I think is something like the casino dice. Um, so my first edge is actually exploring, uh, trying to understand whether we can use science to know the future before it becomes the present, something actually mathematics is very good at. I mean mathematics really at, at its heart is about pattern searching. And that pattern searching has given us an evolutionary advantage because we see patterns that we can read into the future to be able to make predictions. So actually, each edge, I, I took with me an object. Um, so my object on this journey into trying to predict the future is this casino dice. This is a casino dice that I picked up on the tables in Vegas. Um, I was trying to apply my mathematics. I thought, yeah, maths is very good at looking at patterns, trying to predict into the future. Maybe I can use some sort of mathematics to be able to predict what this dice is going to do next. Unfortunately, I lost a a lot of money, um, but they let me keep the dice. So this is the dice that I took back from Vegas. Um, so I'm kind of interested to know, you know, how un how genuinely unknowable is the role of this dice? I guess my hero on my journey to try and know the future is uh, Isaac Newton, because Isaac Newton came up 
with, uh, you know, the, the laws of physics, the laws of motion, which control the way this will fall from my hand, what it will do when it impacts on the table and bounces. Um, he invented the calculus, which allows us to uh, describe a world in motion. And after Newton made those uh, discoveries and wrote them down, we had this feeling like, well, yeah, if you know the setup of the universe and you know uh, how it is now, then you should be able to run the equations to see what's going to happen into the future. So, you know, we've talked about this kind of thing, a clockwork universe, and uh, you know, people made statements, Laplace made this statement about the fact that we should be able to know the future if we know the present because of the, the way these equations um, will evolve. I guess if Newton is my hero, then my nemesis on this journey to know um, the future is this guy here, Henri Poincaré. Um, Henri Poincaré, French uh, mathematician at the turn of the century, said, well, yeah, even if the universe is controlled by um, uh, equations and is totally deterministic, that ain't good enough because just a small approximation, a small error in the description of the universe um, can actually cause a great difference in the outcome of these equations. And this is the discovery of something called chaos theory. The thing is that, you know, it doesn't have to be a complicated system. Uh, we talk about chaos theory with the weather, but it can be a very simple kind of dynamic system which has the equations that we've written them down. So for example, a pendulum. We know the equations which control a pendulum. The geometry is very simple. Pendulum is so predictable that we use it to keep track of time, but this is a slightly different pendulum. So this is what's called a double pendulum. So it's jointed um, in the middle here. It's a bit like a leg. And trying to predict the behavior of this pendulum, um, even though we know the equations, is almost impossible. The thing is, not only is it unpredictable, it's almost impossible to repeat the behaviors. So another of my favorite desktop toys is uh, this little uh, magnet, it's a magnetic pendulum. So it's, uh, you, you set it off and it's got one, two, three, four, six magnets um, and the magnets attract the pendulum. So um, I use this to make all my decisions. So it's got on here, ask a friend, yes, maybe, definitely, no way, try again. So um, am I going to have a beer after the talk? Um, so it's uh, playing away and it's kind of really not sure where it's going to go. Those at the front can see it sort of going wildly. Um, here's a little experiment to show. This is with three magnets and the pendulum. Try and predict where this pendulum is going to end up. You've got the three magnets here. It's almost impossible. It seems to be going to one, then the other. Poincaré actually discovered chaos um, uh, by trying to understand the cosmos, which we thought was quite a, the solar system, we thought was a predictable thing. So let's see, am I going to get a drink? No way. Oh, <laughs> damn. Curses. Well, I've got to... Anyway, so uh, how can I have actually made sure that I actually went to yes? Is there any way I could do that? Um, well, there are regions which are predictable, but I started it off sort of in the, uh, in the corner. And actually, um, here's some computer simulations I did of this pendulum with three magnets. And you see, I started off in the top left-hand corner and just changed like, something like the sixth decimal place of one of the coordinates. And the first experiment ended up at the blue magnet, the second one the red, and the third one at the yellow. Just a small change has a completely different outcome on the path that it takes. Um, and so this is a picture which helps you to predict what's going to happen next. So math isn't completely useless. There are regions where we can know what's going to happen next. Um, so obviously, if I start near the magnet which says yes and just pull it slightly away, it's going to wobble and hit yes. So if I'm near the yellow magnet, I can predict that I'm going to stay near the yellow magnet. But there are other regions which are quite predictable. So the, the picture, you read the picture by, if you start over a yellow color, the magnet, the pendulum, then the pendulum will end up at the yellow magnet. Um, so for example, if I start over here over a yellow region, what happens is it swings back and forwards, but the other two magnets can't pull it. So it ends up going on the yellow magnet here. So there are regions which are knowable. 
But I started it off in the top left-hand corner here, which is an example of something called a fractal. This is kind of the geometry of chaos. And these shapes have infinite complexity. So as I zoom in on them, they never simplify into one single color. Um, as zoom in, I zoom in, it still maintains the three colors, which means just a very small change will cause it um, to go from yellow to red to yellow to red. And so this region here is, an, uh, is one where you cannot really know. If, OK, if you have precise knowledge, you can know. But if you only have uh, just a small approximate um, uh, error, a small error, it, it could cause a completely different outcome. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Now, I also took on my journey to the edges of knowledge some experts with me, because I certainly went into areas which I don't, uh, are not my area of expertise. And in this er area, I took uh, Bob May, or Lord May as he is now. He's a cross-party member in the House of Lords. Um, Bob May discovered that these chaotic equations don't just control mechanical things like the, uh, the pendulum, control the weather, but they also control population dynamics. And he demonstrated that chaotic behavior in the way population dynamics um, evolve as well. But he's now applying his ideas to politics and economics and looking at whether the equations that control something like the economy, maybe it was that chaotic regions that were responsible for the banking crisis, for example. Um, so I asked him whether, how was he getting on uh, sort of trying to persuade the the people in Parliament to learn a bit of chaos theory and mathematics. Um, because he said, you know, this is the statement he said, not only in research, but in the everyday world of politics and economics, we would be better off if more people realised that simple systems do not necessarily possess simple dynamic properties. So I asked him how he was getting on uh, persuading people, and he said, Marcus, they're mostly interested in their egos here at the House of Parliament. So um, not too well at the moment. Um, so what about my dice? Maybe my dice, is that genuinely chaotic. Well, I got a bit of surprise, actually, because I found a piece of research by four Polish mathematicians, and they did the same thing as the kind of picture for the predictability of my pendulum. And they said, OK, well, you can color the faces of my dice with six colors. And so you can draw a picture which sort of uh, determines, you know, a little twist in the angle that you set your dice off. What difference will it have on the outcome? And it turns out that there are regions where it's very predictable. In fact, if you're throwing the dice onto a soft floor, so for example, this is a soft floor here. This is the picture which controls the behavior. It's not fractal. A small change doesn't cause a big change in the outcome. This says that actually with a soft floor, um, the dissipation of energy means you're not in a chaotic region. But as the table gets um, uh, more and more rigid and you lose less energy when it hits the table, you then get into this fractal region. So there are places where you can have more control on the dice, and but there, it depends on where you're throwing the dice. So it turns out that, um, you know, I think this is an important message, is sometimes it's as important to know when you can't know, and then you can be conservative, as to know when science will tell you when you can know. Okay, well that was, that edge was all under a very big assumption, which is that's kind of pre-quantum physics kind of world 
uh, which controls kind of big things like dice. But what about actually quantum physics says, well, maybe things aren't as deterministic as we think. Actually, quantum physics says that maybe things are a little bit more uh, random than, than we expect. And so actually my journey into the kind of world of the quantum I took with me, the object I took with me, is this little uh, pot of uranium. It's amazing what you can buy on the internet. So uh, this pot of uranium um, uh, tells me on the outside information about the radiation. So it tells me that it, in, in one minute, on average, you'll have 984 bits of radiation being ticked, kicked off this piece of um, uranium. But what it can't tell me is when it's going to do that. It can't tell me. And in fact, physics doesn't have any mechanism to say at what moment um, this is going to kick off a bit of radiation. It just has things on average. And this seems to be something genuinely random. I'm not the only one who got excited about the fact that you can buy uranium on the internet. Um, here was one of the comments under Amazon. So glad I don't have to buy this from Libyans in parking lots at the mall anymore. So uh, we were both quite excited about One was complaining, actually, that um, uh, I've had this for several million years and it's only half full. Um, <laughs> Good, you get the half-life joke. That's a good test, you see. Right, we're on board. Let's go forward and meet um, the guy. This is the guy. I'm trying to embrace him, but Heisenberg sort of almost encaptures uh, the, the unknowability of some parts of science. Uh, the unknowability of being able to... So Heisenberg came up with this thing, the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which says that you cannot know... If I've got a, an electron, I cannot know both its position and its momentum, how it's moving, precisely at the same time. Any information, more information I get about the position, I lose information about the, what, what the momentum is. You might say, well, I've identified where it is now, so now I'm going to pin down the momentum, but that causes a new uncertainty in the position. You can't say that you know where it is. And this isn't some fuzzy thing. It's expressed by a, a mathematical equation and follows from the mathematics of quantum physics. Actually, my favorite physics joke is um, Heisenberg is bombing down the motorway and uh, a policeman pulls him over and he says, uh, sir, do you know how fast you were going? He says, no, but I know exactly where I was. Um, <laughs> Uh, actually, somebody told me, so good, uh, not such great laughter, so the point is that, um, uh, so uh, by um, knowing exactly where you are, you lose information about your momentum, about your speed, so he didn't, couldn't know that. Um, so there was a follow-up, somebody told me a follow-up to this joke, actually, so, so the officer says, you know, you were going 180 kilometers an hour. I said, oh, now we're lost. Good, now you're, now you're getting it. So by knowing how the speed, suddenly the position is unknown. But actually, some would say that this is actually uh, a problem more with language, that actually those things don't have a position and a momentum at the same time, that we're actually being sort of forced into this by Newton's idea that that's how you will know the universe, and that we shouldn't think of the electron having a position that we don't know, that actually it's probabilistically distributed, and by observing, it actually then makes up its mind where it's going to be. But before you observe it, it doesn't have a position. You should think of it as a probabilistic wave function, so uh, that when the wave is higher, it says it's more likely to be here, and when it's lower, it says it's less likely to find it there. But the intriguing thing about this is it, it says that it's a non-deterministic universe, that if you repeat the experiment over and over again, each time, even if you have the same initial conditions, you have a different outcome due to this wave function. Now, that goes against everything that I believe. I mean, I, I believe that if you have the same setup, you should have the same outcome. And my belief is that somehow we're still missing an explanation of when this is going to kick off radiation. Because actually, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is at the heart of when this is radiating. We know the momentum quite well because it's bound by the nucleus. It's stuck inside here. But that means there's an uncertainty in the position. And every now and again, probabilistically, that position can be outside of the nucleus. 
and then it emits that bit of radiation. So Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is at the heart of why this actually is radiating. Um, I'm not alone in thinking this can't be the final answer. Um, uh, Einstein also declared quantum mechanics is very impressive, but an inner voice tells me that it's not yet the real thing. The theory produces a good deal, but hardly brings us closer to the secret of the old one. I am at all events convinced that he does not play dice. And, um, you know, it is one of the most well-tested theories we have in physics. It's been tested to, to extremes, but still, you know, surely is there a mechanism which is controlling that? Is that something that actually perhaps we, we could know if we have a new theory? So that was the edge of sort of quantum physics. Um, uh, so I'll quickly skip you through a few of the other edges. I went deep inside this and tried to understand what this is made of. Greeks thought that things were made out of earth, wind, fire, and water. But we updated that and we realized, no, there are things called atoms. So uranium is somewhere here on the periodic table. But you can dig inside there and discover that, no, uranium isn't an atom. It is breakable. You can break it down into electrons, protons, and neutrons. But even the proton and neutron pulled apart. And we now know that that's made out of uh, quarks. And we think that's the last layer, but how do we know? Actually, some people are suggesting there's an even deeper layer, which is string theory. So how can we ever know that we've hit the last layer? The story goes each time we think we've hit the last layer and there's a new story to be told. And then I went outside and looked in the very big. What about the universe? Uh, can we ever know that the universe is finite or infinite? If the universe is infinite, how can we ever know? Um, certainly our view of the universe has changed from generation to generation. We thought we were at the center of it all, and then we realized, no, we're a, we're a part of a solar system. The sun is the center and these planets going around. Then we realized, well, of course, actually, we're not the only uh, sun. We're just part of a huge Milky Way, which again turned out to be just part of some huger things. There are many galaxies. So each time we're pulling out you know how far can we go well actually there is a limit uh, information travels at the speed of light the big bang has gone off there's a kind of cosmic horizon surrounding us beyond which we cannot know anything about the information there so maybe the question of if the universe is infinite could we ever know that we shall see well there's all even we've had to rechange our, uh, our perception of our universe maybe we're in a multiverse and so uh, uh, maybe this is just one universe perhaps galaxies are like the universe is in a multiverse um uh, then I looked at uh, time. Uh, St. Augustine said, well, what is time? If no one asks me, I know, but if I wish to explain it to one that asketh, I know not. Um, so exploring the nature of time, did time exist before the Big Bang? Does that make sense as a question? What's going to happen to time uh, in the future? Turns out that time seems like it's going to end and run out. There'll be a moment when time actually stops. So I've got two more edges to tell you about. Um, okay, the hard problem of consciousness. I'm just going to say Wittgenstein and Beatles. That's enough. Uh, and okay, and the final one is mathematics, because it turns out that mathematics is a place where you can prove limits. Um, so my last edge is actually uh, looking at my own subject and realizing I can prove within my own subject there are things we cannot know. So as I said, each object was a each edge was an object I took on my journey to this edge. So actually, my object in this case was um, some Christmas crackers that I made for my family. Uh, mathematical Christmas crackers. Each had a mathematical joke and a mathematical little paradox. I thought they were really cool, but my kids thought they were really lame. But um, I just feel there's a kind of niche place for this. Anyway, uh, I thought this was quite one of my best jokes in my cr crackers, I think, was this one. What does the B in Benoit B. Mandelbrot stand for? And you have to remember that Benoit B. Mandelbrot was the guy who who invented fractals, discovered fractals, which have infinite complexity. The B stands for Benoit B. Mandelbrot. And Benoit B. Mandelbrot. And yes, good. Um, so I quite like that one. Uh, this is the paradox I put in that one, which I used to love these kind of language games. You know, this statement is false. Uh, you think about it. Okay, well, if that's true, well, then it says it's false. Oh, no. So it must be false. But if it's false, it means it's 
true. Ah, oh, and you get in a little tangle. And now the point is that uh, yeah, statements in a natural language don't necessarily have truth values, but statements in mathematics should either be true or false. And actually, Gödel managed to use this kind of paradox to turn in mathematics in on itself, self-referentially. He was able to code this up as a statement about numbers using something called the Gödel code. This statement is unprovable. Now, if this is a statement about numbers, it's either true or it's false. If it's false, it means that that's a provable statement, which means approvable statements are true, so that you get a contradiction. So that means it must be true, which means we have a true statement within mathematics which cannot be proved to be true. And this was Gödel's great breakthrough, that actually mathematics itself has limitations. There are things within a system which are true, but you cannot prove are true within that system. Now, we've actually proved it's true by working outside the system, but that own system has its own unprovable things. And quite often, this was at the heart of many of these problems, that, that, that within a system, it's very hard to know. If you pull outside, you can look in. But for example, we're stuck in the universe, and we cannot know. Anyway, that's our whistle-stop tour through the edges of knowledge. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Let us know what you thought by tweeting at IAI underscore TV, hashtag what we cannot know. If you enjoyed this talk, check out The Known, The Strange and The New, which you can watch on the IAI TV player. For more episodes, then subscribe to the Philosophy for Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher for more big ideas on the go. We always love to hear feedback, so please email us on podcast at iai.tv. In next week's episode, Buddhist teacher Stephen Batchelor gives ancient wisdom a 21st century home. <laughs>